Luke chapter 3, and we are going to be starting with verse uh, 23, and um, you will see pretty quickly that it is a genealogy, okay? And we love genealogies, don't we? Oh, we do. Um, and you'll notice that there are two major genealogies in the Bible when it comes to Jesus. One is Matthew chapter 1, and the other is here in uh, uh, Luke chapter 3. Um, and we're going to talk about these genealogies uh, a lot because there's a lot in here. Um, but there are some overall differences. But before we get into these two genealogies, I think it would help us to go back to Genesis chapter 9, way back at the beginning. And somebody start reading Genesis chapter 9. Uh, let's see what verse I want. Uh, let's just say... Um, Verse 8, start in verse 8. Chapter 9, no, yep, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, verse 8, and I'll stop you when I want you to stop. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the, way, by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be, when I bring a cloud over the earth, that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of okay, all flesh. Okay, let's stop there for a minute. Okay, so this is God's establishment of the what's called the Noahic Covenant. Okay? It's important when you see a covenant that you recognize who the parties are. So this is a covenant between whom? God, okay. Noah, and all the creatures of the earth. Okay, Noah and, and his sons. Okay, with the specific thing says, God said to Noah and his sons with him. Okay? So this is a covenant between God and Noah's sons, okay? Now, it will impact all their generations after them. It's not a one-time covenant. It's a perpetual covenant. Uh, He says, you know, a covenant between you and me and the earth for all future generations. Okay, so when you see a covenant in the Bible, the thing you need to pay attention to is who's making the promise, who's making the covenant, and how long does the covenant last, okay? So... This is one that God has promised to all the descendants uh, of, um, of Noah. Okay, now let's skip down to verse 18. Start now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. Okay, keep going. And Noah began to be a farmer planted a vineyard. Then he drank to the wine and was drunk, and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. 
So Noah woke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Then he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years. So all the days of Noah were 950 years. Okay, now, let's stop there, and then he died. Um, now, let's stop there, because I think it's really important to understand this book of the Bible is a historic book, and everything in the Bible has meaning. Okay, so if you look at your little graph here, these are just my notes I scribbled. Okay, so if you look at this, Noah has three sons. Okay, we have Shem. His name means fame or name. Okay, like big name, important power, that sort of thing. Japheth means God enlarges, and Ham means hot or sunburned. Okay, so those are the three kids. Now we know that Shem had five children, okay? And if you look at his children, they are the father of these nations. Okay, so Elam is the father of the Persian Empire. Aser, the Assyrians. Aphraxad, Jews and Arabs. Aram, the Armenians or Turkey. And Lud basically took a place called Lydia. Remember the... Uh, and so Shem's line creates these people. Okay. Now remember, God said that every human on the planet would be able to be traced back to Noah's line. Okay. Remember, He says, "I will make from you guys the rest of the all the people of the world." Okay. Now, Japheth means God enlarges. Okay. Now, the descendants of Japheth moved out of Palestine, and some went north to Europe, and some went east towards China. Okay. So the descendants of Japheth are the Europeans which include Greek, Romans, us, Americans, okay? And those that went east are the, all the Chinese variants, okay? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay, now, Ham. Notice, first of all, notice that Shem, Japheth, and Ham are included in the original covenant by God, okay? And they are blessed, right? They're part of the covenant. God has blessed them forever, their descendants and everything else. Now, when Noah wakes up, he's ticked off, right? As he should be. And we don't know exactly what happened when he was naked, but we can imagine some weird things happened. He woke up and realized it, and he's not happy about it. Okay. Now, notice that even though Ham was the one that did the bad stuff, he couldn't be cursed because he's already received God's blessing forever. And God's covenant overrides anything Noah can do. Does that make sense? Yep. Okay. So instead, Canaan and his descendants are cursed, not by God, but by Noah. Okay? It's important to recognize when things, curses happen and things happen, who's doing what? If you look at the descendants of Canaan, you get Philistines, Lebanon, Jordan, Syria. Okay? And the scriptures in Genesis say that these nations will become slaves to or servants of the other two lines, Shem and Japheth. Okay? What's being played out in our world today? That's what's being played out in our world today. All right? Now, it's important to know that there are other children of Ham that are not Canaanites and are not under the curse. And they produce Egyptians and Africans. Why is that important? What do you think? 
I'll tell you. If you go back to 1860 and Civil War and slavery, one of the arguments that was made to maintain slavery was that all the black people and all people of dark skin were descendants of Canaan and Ham, or descendants of Ham, and Ham's line is cursed. And they used that as a reason why they could do slavery, why they could oppress people with dark skin. The problem is they didn't know how to read the Bible because Ham's line wasn't cursed, Canaan's line was cursed. And the Egyptians and Africans did not come from Canaan's line, they came from Ham's line through other people. Okay, does that make sense? Okay, now, so we see this begin to play out and we see that if you look at Shem and you come down here and you see Effexad, Jews and Arabs are descended from that because that line is going to produce Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then they're going to split, remember, and we're going to end up with Arabs and Jews. Okay? Now, notice the Arabs aren't cursed. Some people will try to argue they are. They're not. Okay? They're in the same line as the Jews. They're not Canaanites. Okay? Um, in fact, their descendants, God tells Hagar and others that he's going to bless them and multiply them. Um, so, but it's important to see that you can trace many lines back to the original three that came off the ark. Now, how many have heard of 23andMe? Who owns 23andMe? The Mormons, Church of Latter-day Saints. And if you gave them your DNA, who can now own your DNA? The Mormons. You can't. They can't. Why did they want to get a DNA database? everybody back okay why would they want to do that what do the mormons believe no that's the jehovah's witnesses close the mormons believe they are a subset of chosen people the only true descendants of shem okay so what they want to do is they want to get the dna and prove that the people that are part of the church of latter-day saints are actually the only line that's not cursed and therefore the only people going to heaven. And they're trying to use DNA to prove it. Now it's interesting, if you look at Bible archaeology, they're using DNA to figure out where these people ended up. Okay, so like there's a, a, a thing recently that showed uh, that when you look at Canaan, 90% of people who are from Lebanon are Canaanite. Their, their DNA is 90%. So most of the Canaanites went to Lebanon. Um, now, so if you look at that, it gives you sort of an idea of the overall lay of the land, at least from the time of Noah. Okay, now, we are going to look at the genealogy of Matthew and Luke and where they track them back to. So, a couple things. If you first glance at Matthew, Matthew does the typical genealogy that we're all used to. You start with, you know, the um, oldest. They had this person. They had this person. They had this person. They had this person. They had this person, and they had Jesus. All right. If you look at Luke, he goes the opposite. Jesus, parents, up, 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 all the way to Abraham, all the way to Adam and Eve. Okay. Now, who is Luke? Who is who is Matthew writing to? Matthew's writing to the Jews. So he takes his lineage beginning with Abraham because anybody prior to that doesn't matter to him. All he's got to do is prove that Jesus came from Abraham because he's talking to Jews. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And if you look at his genealogy, it flows down through the Jewish line. 
Okay. So if you look at page two, this is pretty much, uh, if you looked at uh, Matthew, you would start halfway down this list with Abraham and follow it down. Okay. Luke, however, is talking to Gentiles, non-Jews. He goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. Okay. Why do you think Luke would want to go back to Adam and Eve? He's the what? Second Adam? He is. But why is that particularly important to Luke? <clears throat> What's Luke trying to prove to the Gentiles? That, that, they're, in that they're, in, they're in the line as well. That he's the God of all people. Right. right? What better way to prove he's the God of all people than to take him back to Adam? Okay? The Jews only care about Abraham. The Gentiles, this guy goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. Okay? Now, if you look at this, Luke will take the, the difference back to Adam and Eve, and he says Adam and then Seth and Lamech and Noah and Shem. Okay, we just talked about that, right? And then both of them agree on the next group of people down to David. So if you lined up Matthew and you lined up Luke and you went from Abraham to David, they're in agreement, okay? However, when you get to David, things change. So go to the third page. So David has two sons that we're going to talk about. One is Solomon. The other is Nathan. Okay. Now, Matthew's genealogy talks about Solomon. That Solomon is the father of Jeconiah. Jeconiah is the father of blah, 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 down to Joseph. Okay. Luke splits off at David and starts chasing Nathan's line. Okay, so clearly this isn't the same genealogy for the same person. They both contract themselves back to David. Mm -hmm. They both contract themselves all the way back to Abraham. But when they get to the sons of David, there's two different fathers, therefore it's two different people. Okay, now... This is something you may not know, but somebody go to Jeremiah 22:30. Now, let me just say a couple things. In order for Jesus to be the Messiah, he had to have a legal authority established by Scripture. In other words, his father, his earthly father, had to have a lineage that goes back to Abraham and to David. Okay? For the covenant we're going to talk about, he also had to physically go back to David. It's birth, okay? So somebody read Jeremiah twenty-two thirty. Thus says the Lord, Write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days. For none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. Okay, who's he talking about? Talking about Jeconiah. Okay? Jeconiah's line is cursed. Okay? Joseph, based on his own birthright, is unable to be the father of Jesus. That line's cursed. Okay? Jeconiah, um, basically, God said, You and none of your descendants can sit on the throne. Okay? 
So if Joseph had been the true father of Jesus, Jesus couldn't have been the Messiah. However, because Joseph took on the adoptive parent role, his legal authority is transferred, but the physical authority isn't. In other words, when God says, I curse you and your descendants, what he's talking about is you and every physical person born of you, right? Now, Jesus doesn't fit that criteria because he's not a physical person born of anybody, right? right? So he is of Mary, but not of Joseph. So when a line is cursed, it's cursed, like in this case, through the father. Mm -hmm. Joseph couldn't be his dad, physical dad, Mm -hmm. because that line's cursed. He couldn't have been the Messiah, okay? But... The lineage that tracks back is through the father's name, and if you're adopted, it's through the father's name, okay? If you die at a young age and your brother has to take over your wife, then she takes on that name, and the lineage continues, okay? Does that make sense? So Jesus got his legal authority to be Messiah, King, descendant of David through Joseph. But it's, it's only through the adoption title part. He got his physical descendants through Mary. Okay? In other words, he's a descendant of Mary. He's not a descendant of Joseph. His father is God. His mother is Mary. Right? Now, the promise God made to David and to the ones before is that a physical descendant of yours will sit on the throne forever. And he will be, all those things they say about the Messiah, right? He'll be a descendant of David, one of yours. Abraham, one of your offspring will do this. Well, an offspring is a physical birth, okay? And so Jesus fulfills all that through his physical birth of Mary. And these two lineages, the one in Matthew is Joseph's lineage. The one in Luke is Mary's lineage. Okay, that's why they split. Does that make sense? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so when we look at this, we see that um, um, for a long time they had a hard time figuring out why these don't match up, and the reason is they're talking about two different people. And so Mary brings the physical descendant offspring promise. Joseph brings the legal authority through his lineage. Does that make sense? Okay, now... The other thing you need to know is that there's no Greek word for son-in-law. Okay? And the reason is that they consider a son a son. And when you get married, you're married into the family. It's just that, right? So when they say um, Joseph, son of Heli, okay, well, Heli was Mary's dad. In their culture, that made sense. We would have said son-in-law of Heli. Right. Okay? So when you look at these genealogies, several things become very interesting. One is God's working through this whole thing from beginning to end. Um, There are a lot of names mixed into these two genealogies that we want to think about. One is that um, Luke's genealogy goes all the way from Jesus, son son of Mary, essentially, all the way back to Adam and never mentions a single woman. Okay, Matthew includes four women, all of whom have reputable questions. Okay? And so that's interesting when you just compare those two. All right? Now, the other thing you need to know 
is these aren't random things. In other words, the one thing the Jews were really good at was keeping genealogical records. Okay, now, some people said that at Jesus' time, there weren't genealogical records available, and therefore, when the Gospels were written, they didn't have them, so they could have made mistakes up and down. That's why the two were different, they said, for years. But the problem was, they were ready. They were available. The genealogic records were available until 70 A.D. What happened in 70 A.D.? Temples destroyed, the records were burned. Okay? So from 70 A.D. forward, nobody knows who they're a descendant of. They can't prove it. Okay, that's a huge problem when you've got a Messiah coming from the tribe of Judah. Right? So anybody who claims to be the Messiah has to prove they're from the tribe of Judah, which is what these genealogies do. Right? Both genealogies, tribe of Judah. Okay, now, why is Jesus, the high priest, not a Levite? Why was he born of the tribe of Judah? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, remember the Levite, the kids of Levite became all the priests? Jesus is the high priest? Why did Jesus, why wasn't he a Levite? Any idea? He's also a ruler, not just a priest. He is a ruler, but you know the question of why is he not a Levite? Um, and I'm glad you asked the question because we can learn something from it. So let me show you um, Hebrews chapter seven, verse eleven. We'll start in eleven. So let's start there, somebody. Hebrews. Chapter 7, verse 11. And perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? Okay, stop right there for a minute. So here's what the author's asking. What he's saying is, if perfection had been obtainable through the Levitical priesthood, okay, in other words, if we could have had a Levitical priest become so perfect that they could, you know, reach perfection, then there wouldn't have been a need for another priest to arrive in the order of Melchizedek. Okay, now, who's the other priest he's talking about? Jesus. Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, not Levites. Who is Melchizedek, and when did he show up? Melchizedek is early on in Genesis. In fact, uh, when Abraham, um, uh, at one point, when they, they go to Melchizedek to offer him the tithe, essentially, for the, the battle and the things that they had obtained, okay? And Melchizedek is what people think is a theophany of God. In other words, a Old Testament uh, appearance of Jesus himself, okay? Uh, and the reason is, is that Melchizedek takes on the role of God. After the battle, they go and they present to him the tithe that would have gone to God. So he's acting as God. Okay, now what this is saying is, Melchizedek was a priest long before the Levites were ever priests. Okay? And Jesus' fulfillment comes from Melchizedek 
who's the original priest, not the Levites who came thousands of years later. Okay? Again, what he's saying is Jesus, as the uh, priest of Melchizedek, is the priest for the entire world, not just the Jewish nation. Okay? So the writer of, of Hebrews says, look, now if perfection had been obtained through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise in the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, not a Levite, right? From which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witness to him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. All right? So, basically, and then it goes on, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. And then in verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Okay? So Jesus' covenant is far greater than that of the Levitical priests. Does that make some sense? Mm -hmm. And I think that's important to recognize. Um, and let me just go through my notes and see what I haven't told you. Um, uh, let's see here. Um, now, the other thing... Um, Four women are mentioned, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, although Bathsheba is not by name. Um, it's the woman that slept with David. Um, and many people have seen them as foreshadowings of Mary. Um, each woman had something unusual related to her husband. Um, so that's interesting. Um, let's see here. Um, I mentioned that, um, yeah, one of the things is the, it's important to realize the genealogy was present during Jesus's um, time on earth, okay? The reason is, what would be one of the easiest ways to discredit or discount Jesus? Prove he wasn't from his line. Yeah, if you could prove he wasn't a descendant of David, he's done, Right? Now, what's the problem with the argument that God is his father and, jo and Joseph is his adopted earthly father? What was the problem with that with the Jews? They didn't believe it, right? I mean, most of the Jews didn't believe that this was a holy yeah. conception, right? They're like, no, Joseph, he did it. He's just trying to get away with it, all right? Well, the fact that he did it made him legally the successor of David. Okay? Now, Mary also came from David. Nobody cares about a woman's genealogy until we get to Luke writing, which is another thing, uh, or Matthew writing, which is another thing how odd it is that Matthew included women and relatively disreputable women in the lineage of Jesus, right? So when you, when you look at how this plays out, um, it's important to realize that um, um, the records were all available 
when Jesus was born. Because the easiest way to discredit him would have been go down to the temple, follow the lineage, and show that he wasn't a descendant of David. Right? That would have, he would have been done. Or show he's not from the tribe of Judah. That would have done it. Or any or not born in Bethlehem. Whatever you want to look at, there's certain prophecies that had to be fulfilled. He fulfilled every one of them, and so they couldn't make the argument that he is not the Messiah because he doesn't meet the criteria that the Messiah would have to have. Okay, now, in 70 AD, the temple is burned and all the records are gone. Okay. That makes it very hard for a Messiah to prove what Jesus has proved after AD 70. Anybody who comes and claims to be the Messiah can't really prove that they are of the genetic line of the tribe of Judah and the descendant of David. All right. Where do you think the 23 and me stuff is headed? Who's going to need to prove that they have a genetic link back to the tribe of Judah? Antichrist. Right? Because if you claim to be the Messiah, which he's going to do in a sense, you've got to show that you come from that line. Now, he won't be purely Jewish, right? But I think he's going to come up with some manipulation to go, look, I've got Jewish blood in me, or I've got a lineage of Judah in me. I'm, the scriptures were talking about me. He's not going to profess to be God's Messiah, but he's going to in some way manipulate the gene pool to say, you know, maybe he'll say, look, I'm perfectly 10% of everybody. I've got all the lines. Uh, something like that is he's going to use to validate what he's doing. Okay. Now, that's just my opinion. That's not in scripture. Um, now, um, there's no evidence in any of the scriptures that anyone ever disputed his claim to be born of the lineage that he needed to be to be the Messiah. In other words, the Pharisees and scribes never brought it up. They did say that he's a bastard child. You know, you're born of a bastard child, essentially. You know, we know who our father is. You don't know who your father is. So they're basically saying, look, you're a bastard. What they really believed was Joseph was the father. Um, and so um, that's important for us to realize. Um, and both genealogies do trace Jesus's lines. Um, they're just doing it. One's doing it through the father and the mother, and each one's going differently. Um, now, um, I'm just looking at my notes here real quick. Uh, now, why do you think Luke, other than writing um, for um, Gentiles, chose to use Mary's line all the way back to Adam? Why did he write about Mary's line? Yeah. So the four women were either in truly or perceived as harlots. So is Mary. Yes. So it just shows that, yes. Yeah. The four women in the genealogy of Jesus are felt to be foreshadows of Mary herself. That Mary, too, was a potentially harlot woman with an odd relationship with her husband. Right? If you look at each of those women, they had different relationships with their husband that would be considered somewhat scandalous. All right? So, yes, that's part of it. But who did he have access to? Mary, who did he not have access to? Joseph, Joseph he's dead, right? So when Jesus, when uh, Luke decides to write the genealogy of Jesus, he tracks it back through Mary's line um, because Mary is one of his key sources of information. He's been talking to her 
about everything, okay? And he's going to track her back all the way to Adam and Eve. Okay, now, why do you think, where do you think he got the information for his genealogy? The temple, and Mary would have validated it. The one thing that every Jewish person knew was their lineage. They knew who they came from. They knew where the tribe they came from. It's very important to them to know what tribe they came from, who their ancestors were, all that sort of stuff. Not because one was better than the other, because they're all blessed by God, and they're all Jewish, right? Now, um, if you look at the lineage that goes back to Adam and Eve, um, you know, I skipped over a whole bunch of people in there, by the way. But think about this. How many people in our country want to prove that they are from the Mayflower? Not me, but some people do, and it's important yeah, to them. Daughters, daughters of the, of the Republic Rivers. or whatever. Yeah. How long ago was the Mayflower? Less than 300 years, right? Over 300, 400 years. I don't know, 1,500 and something, 1,700. Anyway, 1,600. Anyway, oh. A couple centuries. We're talking about going back to the beginning of mankind. I mean, tracking your lineage back to Adam and Eve. Now, if you think about Adam and Eve, who were their children? Everybody. But who were their children? Children. Cain and Abel. One short-lived. Right? And who was the next child in line? Seth. Okay. Who are, who is Noah descended from? Seth. Seth. Why? I mean, if you think about it, okay, Adam and Eve are associated with the first sin. All right, Cain and Abel are also associated with essentially the first sin. Seth is the first one that really doesn't have that stigma tied to him. Okay, and so Noah is a descendant of Seth. Noah's three kids. This is the important thing. Noah's three kids came out. They're all blessed by God. They all share in a promise. The Noah covenant is for all three. Uh, Ham is not cursed, and the lines of Ham are not cursed. Anybody tells you they are, they don't know the Bible. Canaan, one of his sons, line is cursed and will be cursed forever. Okay, and that line has become. Lebanese, Palestinian, Syria, Jordan, um, those kind of things. The only thing I haven't been able to figure out where they came from, or at least thought of, is Saudi Arabia. Um, I think they're just going to come from the same Jewish line of Arab nations because uh, they don't seem to be specific. It's important to know that Kushites, who are Africans, and Egyptians are not from the line of Canaan. So what does other mean? Other? Yeah. Where? From Egypt and Africa. Oh, other. Other. Other means that I didn't want to write down all of Ham's children. Oh, okay. But they're non Canaanites. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now, where did the Canaanites settle after they were um, out of the ark? Yes the land of the Canaanites, right? And remember, it's the Canaanites that are driven out by God's people. God gave the land to his people. Okay, now, 
What do the Palestinians claim? It's their land, and it has been for 6,000 years. We were here first, right? And they will tell you we are direct descendants of Canaan, the Canaanites, okay? In fact, the uh, president, I just heard the president of uh, Lebanon say that just a month ago. We're, we are the original descendants of the Canaanites. So, uh, and, right. and the answer is, yes, you are. But, first. but this ain't your land, right? <laughs> um, and you will be serving the other nations, including the Arab nations. That's what's very interesting about this. You know, the promise was you will be servants of your other brothers, Shem and Japheth offline. Okay, that means that the Jordan, Syrian, Palestinians, Lebanese are going to be servants of every nation in the world. That's not them, right? China, Turkey. Jews, Syrians. Um, it's also interesting to see where the major world powers came from. Okay, uh, so for instance, Elam uh, of Shem developed the Persian Empire. The Assyrians came from there as well. Uh, Armenians are basically Turkey, uh, the land of the Armenians, and um, the Roman Empire came from Japheth, which is interesting because the title of Japheth means God enlarges. China, Roman Empire, Greek Empire, Europeans, Americans, all nations that have dramatically increased in size. Um, and um, the reason I wanted to spend some time on this is a lot of people read through the genealogies and they skip through stuff. Uh, if you look in here, there's all kinds of interesting things I didn't go into. Um, um, but one of the problems with Jewish genealogies is the names show up over and over and over. There's a lot of Josephs in there. There's a lot of Matthews in there. There's a lot of Levi's in there. There's a lot of, you know, so you read the son of Levi, and you're oh, they're a priest. Well, that ain't that Levi. It's, it's another Levi. Um, and, in fact, there's two people mentioned here uh, in both, um, let me see if I can find them, in both of the uh, genealogies. Um, and while the names are the same, it says um, the son of Zubabel, the son of Shilatil, Okay. Uh, the son of Neri. And so you have in both genealogies, Zubububel and Shilatil, but one's the son of Neri, one's the son of somebody else. So those two aren't the same person either. Um, so it's, it's interesting to look through here. I wrote down the ones I thought you might recognize um, on the genealogy that I put down. Because I, you know, there's, I don't even count how many people are here, but there's a lot of people beget so and so, beget so and so, beget so and so. Okay, now, um, the, um, notice that Luke uses the term the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of, okay? What does um, Matthew use? Beget. Okay, what's the difference? Beget um, basically means um, sired. Um, beget is kind of, if you look it up in Hebrew, it's, it's not so much birth, it's more sired. In other words, the father role. Um, whereas the son of somebody is more of a physical birth role. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So if I said, you know, like when you look, even if you look at, that's a bad comment, bad, but if you look at horses, 
That's exactly what's going to You know, if you look at like thoroughbred horses, exactly. they're sired, sired through the father's line. Okay. Well, same thing happens here. Beget is going through Joseph's line. Um, whereas son of is going through Mary's line. It's just interesting. You're looking at me like I'm crazy. Um, um, I'm just trying to think that like nowadays, isn't it Jewish people look more to their mother's line for their... They do if they're not trying to prove they're in line for the Messiah show. But yeah, I mean, they, they, no, the father of the Jewish, the Jewish father is the father of the line. I mean, he's the, he's the head dude. Um, most people could tell you, Jewish people tell you who their father through, not who their mother through, um, even to this day. I mean, the, the one thing about Jewish culture is the father is the head of the house, and it's his family. In fact, if you look at it, if you're a woman and you marry a man, you're moving into their house, not yours, and you two aren't going to find your own house. You're going to live under the father's house. Um, so um, um, that's um, that's that. Do you have something? Yeah, I, all the Jewish people I ever grew up with in Brooklyn, they always made it clear that if your father was Jewish and your mother wasn't, you weren't Jewish. Right. Your mother had you could your yeah. your mother had to be Jewish for you to be born. Well, and again, it depends on are you talking cultural or legal. Well, I meant okay, because what know, I mean he, by that is here's what I mean. Yeah, if you are a descendant of Abraham, you had to be born of a Jewish woman, right? Why? Because men don't deliver babies. So, if you're a descendant of Abraham, right? Abraham, you and your offspring will become whatever. Okay, offspring means you're physically birthed by somebody in that line, right? That means it tracks through the mom. If you're looking at legal title, who's responsible for the home, who do you belong to, who's the spiritual leader of the house, that's through the father, okay? So they're right in that if you're not born of a Jewish mother, you you basically have blocked the line. You're no longer Jewish because you were born of a Gentile. Right now, you can be fathered by a Gentile and still be born Jewish. Get it? The offspring is through whoever delivers the baby. Problem with Jesus, not the problem. The beauty of Jesus is there ain't no father line to look at. It's purely the mom's line, um, which is one of the reasons the Catholic Church puts her in such high regard. But the point was is that he's birth of the Holy Spirit, and his 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 authority. His power, his right to the throne, his order, Melchizedek, whatever you want to call it, comes straight from the Father and the Holy Spirit, not from any man. Okay, so he's a unique individual human being who's born Jewish, the promise of Mary to the David line, uh, and is also legally adopted by a Jewish man who has claims back to David as well but doesn't have the ability to father a um, curse line or a lineage. Now, let me ask you another question. Now that you know about Joseph's line, um, what do you think about James? Fathered by Joseph, he too can't be the Messiah. Right. Doesn't mean he can't be a very important 
believer in Christ, he just can't be the Messiah. He can't sit on the spiritual throne because he's fathered by Joseph as well, or in general. Uh, so there's just a lot of things to sort of think about. Um, um, and, um, yeah, I think that's pretty much all I had tonight because genealogies are hard to do, and you, once you do a genealogy, you can't really go into something else after that because it takes too long to set it up. But why is this... Let me ask you another question when you start comparing these. Matthew says nothing until he first tells you about Jesus' genealogy. Luke waits until Jesus has announced his ministry and has been baptized before he begins to talk about his genealogy. Why do you think they are different that way? I would assume it has to go to Matthew talking to Jewish people and it being some something to do with Jewish Gentile. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, he'd have to establish it first. Basically, a Jewish person would not want to hear a word about Jesus until he knew he met the criteria. Gotcha, okay. In other words, remember the Jewish people, they don't write long, drawn-out you know, novels. They don't include a lot of details. They cut to the chase. They're not big into timelines. They're not big into setting things up. They're very much this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. It may not happen in that order, but all happened, deal with it, right? And so what they're doing is what he's saying is, look, I'm writing to the Jews. I have one chance to show them they missed the Messiah. Okay, I've got to convince them that he qualified to be the Messiah before I tell them anything about it. Okay, and so what he does is he tells the genealogy, and then he jumps into the ministry of Jesus. Okay. What Luke does, he tells all about prior to being born, all about going to the town, all these sorts of things. Then he talks about the baptism. Then he goes into the genealogy. You know, the reason is, well, first of all, he tells us something very important. Verse 23, Luke 3.23, what does that tell us? Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, as was supposed the son of Joseph. Okay, okay. So how old was Jesus when he began his ministry? Okay, does that have significance, you think? Of course it does. It's scripture. What do you think the significance is? When did a priest become a priest? How old did you have to be? 30. Priests became priests at 30, not before. Why did priests become priests at 30? Because they're... And they're finally all grown up. <laughs> okay, well, one, God commanded it in Deuteronomy. You couldn't be a priest till you were 30. Second is exactly that. Young men were felt not to be mature enough to be a priest. You had to have some life lesson, some understanding, some maturity to you before you would be a priest. Okay? So even though you're in the lineage of the priesthood, even though you may be in the process of you know, being groomed to become a priest, you had to have some life experience under you before you could be a priest. For that reason, many denominations up until the 1970s would not ordain anybody under the age of 30. I think it's not a bad idea. Um, but what happened was they had a huge need for people to share the gospel. They had all these people dumping out of seminaries around age 23, 24, and they didn't want to wait for them to mature. So they just ordained them and put them into ministry. And if you look at the success rate, by success I mean 
still in ministry to retire. So, and you look at those that started prior to 30, those that started after 30, it's a dramatic difference. And the reason, for several reasons, one is I didn't become a pastor until I was 38, 39, almost 40, I guess. Um, and you do have to have a certain amount of life expansion. I mean, you have people that are in their 70s and 80s asking you to share some of the most intimate moments of their life with them. You have to have a certain amount of maturity. Um, it's hard to lead people who are leading children if you've never had children or you don't know. I mean, there's just a certain amount of maturity that comes with it. It's not too different than experience being a doctor. I mean, you, people want somebody that's got at least enough life in them to know what it's like. I mean, you, you break down some of your pride and arrogance by the time you're 30 or 40. So they, um, so the fact that he was 30 years of age was basically when a priest declared himself to be a priest. Uh, it's when they went through the process at the temple of becoming a priest. So Jesus comes out of the water. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And he says when he began his ministry about age 30, and then he goes into his lineage. And the reason is, his lineage doesn't matter until he declares himself to be the Messiah. I mean, okay. you know what I mean? I mean, his lineage to Gentiles, like, who cares? Um, we didn't even know there was a lineage to look at. And so it's interesting where they put the lineage, but both of them identify the lineage at the very beginning of his earthly ministry. It's just Luke includes a bunch of stuff prior to that. Matthew doesn't really. Matthew goes straight into it. Okay, now the other thing is, Matthew doesn't care what Jesus did until he declares himself for ministry, for the most part. I mean, he does mention the, the wise men and stuff, but he jumps straight to, here's what Jesus started doing um, pretty quickly. Whereas Luke talks about, you know, Elizabeth and Mary, and, and the funny thing is, is you can almost see, it's going to sound really bad, you can almost see Matthew written by a male and Luke written with a lot of female influence. And I mean that in the nicest way. Um, That's pretty much Mary, Mary's words, basically. But what? if you look at it, a woman would talk. <laughs> a woman would talk about the birth and the excitement of what happened prior, and the, you know this and this and this. And the men would just go, "He declared himself, and he went to Cana and turned some water into wine." I mean, that's. Whereas women would include a lot more details and fluffy stuff. You know, she cherished these things in her heart. She noticed, and you can tell Mary's influence is in this writing. Um, just the thought uh, that uh, I think is true. Um, and um, the other thing is Matthew is making a argument as a tax collector. Remember, he was a tax collector on the Jews and their responsibility to accept the Messiah. Luke is writing a historical record of the story of Jesus from the beginning to the ascension, or even beyond that, the early church. So they have different purposes. Mm -hmm. And the reason I keep bringing this up is initially, if you don't study the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John all sound the same. Mm -hmm. But when you start studying it, you start going, wait a minute. This is written to a different audience. This is written for a different group of people. There's a different focus here. It's like when somebody pulls a scripture out of Matthew or Luke, my first thought is who's writing this? Because they're going to write based on who they're writing to what they're looking at, why they include certain details and didn't include other details. So you'll see something like some stories are in all four Gospels. Some are only in two, some are only in one, right? And everybody goes, well, why aren't they all exactly the same? Because they're all writing to different audiences. Different things are differently important. 
right? Uh, they want to emphasize different things based on who their readers are going to be. They all experienced it. They just picked out of that experience. Some picked all four things to be important. Some picked something else because of who they're writing to. John, the last one to write, was very much in your face. Jesus is the Messiah, and you missed it, and you need to turn around. And he goes through miracle after miracle after miracle to show them that they missed him. He turned. If you read John, it's one miracle story after another. He goes to wine at Cana. He talks about walking on the water. He talks about calming the storm. He talks about you know, do, you know, raising people from the dead. He does all the things that only God could do to prove to them that they missed the Messiah. So each of these writers are writing differently. Mark is the classic. I'm Jewish. I've never written anything before. I have to write something down. I'm going to take what's essentially a bunch of post-it notes, stick it all together, and call it a book. I mean, if you look at his writings, yeah. they, they come across that way. Um, so I think that's helpful for us to realize when we begin to look at some of these things. And it's easy to skip through the genealogy. Um, and my bet is, is if we went and dug into all these different people, we find tons of very interesting things. But the problem is we don't have details on a lot of these people. Um, we know they're in the genealogic records because this is essentially what's left after the temple's destroyed. Uh, the Torah has some records, but this lines up with them. So the, the problem becomes, you know, there's a guy in there, uh, Joshua, son of Eliezer, son of Joram, son of Mathat, son of Levi, son of Simeon, son of so Judah. So you go down the line and you get to these people and you, there's really nothing written about them. So my bet is there's a lot of significant things about them we just don't know. Mm -hmm. What we are given in this genealogy and in all the genealogies is enough to have faith to believe that God was working through the mankind all the way to Jesus, right? I mean, the one thing you get when you study the genealogies is there's been a plan from the beginning. Um, you know, the, the idea that Jesus is of the tribe of Judah, um, uh, that he... Um, you know, it's not a Levi. All those things are well, I won't say thought out, but it's God's plan. He, he needed a priest for the world, not for Abraham's descendants. So a Levitical priest wouldn't meet that criteria. Okay? And so from the beginning of Scripture, you see how God is planning and working to incorporate Gentiles. I mean, from the very beginning, his goal was, I'm going to bring the whole world together. I'm going to send a Messiah that not only solves the sins of the Jewish people, but the whole world. He's not the Jewish Messiah. He's the world's Messiah. The Jews held the promise. The Jews' job was not to, I mean, they were a nation blessed by God because they were given the scriptures to protect and guard, not because they were more saved or less saved than anybody else. And that was one of Jesus' messages is, you know, I can make descendants of Abraham from the stones, right? So that's not going to do it for you. It's not enough. And I think that's important to realize that God planned for Gentiles to come into the kingdom from the very beginning. As soon as sin entered the world, he wanted to save everybody. Now, the other question is, how many in this room are Jewish? We don't know. You we don't know. You don't know because, because <laughs> 10 tribes of Judah are lost, right? I mean, once the Assyrians and Babylonians came in, they're dispersed among the nations. So many of them went up into Europe. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me at all if a lot of people are Jewish and don't know it. When will they find out? When the Mormons get finished stealing everybody's DNA. Um, 
And so, um, but it wouldn't surprise me at all. In fact, some people have argued, and I'm not sure that they're, I don't know if I should even say this. Um, it's, okay, let's just take this with a huge grain of salt. But there are some that said believers are all Jewish. That those who believe come from a Jewish line. And those who don't, don't. Okay, in other words, the selection is, is yes, God chose you, yes, he did whatever, but they're arguing that at the end of time, when Jesus comes back, all the people who are believers are going to find out they're descendants of Abraham. Okay, now, the problem with that is that's exactly what the Latter-day Saints want to argue, and it violates Scripture. How can you think where that violates Scripture? He promised it to all the world. Yes, and not just the descendants of Abraham. Okay? Scriptures are very clear. Okay, all we've just been proving it. It's for all the world. So you're not a select person who believe. You weren't chosen by God to believe because you're Jewish. Right. Okay, which is what they would argue. Okay. So what's interesting is the Mormons who are pretty strongly anti Semitic at times want to claim that they're actually descendants <laughs> of Abraham, which is kind of interesting when you think about it. Um so yeah, so that's interesting to me. Um, There's just a lot to it, that's all. Um, I was just, you're speaking, I'm just keep looking back at the curse and the, the places. It's just, history's repeating itself. Well, and, we and I think it's, and remember that, um, and this is really important, this is important to realize. <clears throat> nations are cursed, people of nations are not, necessarily. Okay, in other words, these nations are the descendants of Canaan, and the nation will serve. Your descendants, in general, will serve as slaves. You know, the people are sinners that need a savior that Jesus came to save, right? What, what these lineages are talking about is the, the peoples, the nations that arise out of the different lines, right? But within every nation are believers, non-believers, those who, you know, it's not like, Oh, you're from Canaan, therefore all the Lebanese are cursed. No, that's not true. It's they're separated from God. The nation itself is going to serve a role that goes against God, but they themselves need to be saved. I mean, that's the whole point. Um, so, what are your thoughts about all this? You ever studied genealogy before? You know, that's an interesting thing because, and one of the things you see in genealogy is the children pay the price for their adult stupidity. Ishmael did nothing wrong. He was just born. Um, But that's how, you know, that's how it works. And the interesting thing is a lot of people who don't know scriptures will argue that the uh, Arabs are cursed from Ham. And they're not. They're blessed from God, just like the Jewish people are. The only difference between the Jewish people and the Arab people is two things. One, the Jewish people were held as God's favored nation who would hold on to the scriptures, protect the scriptures, and the Messiah would come from them. Okay, The Arab nations initially were just a group of people that were going to go out and be multiplied. and But when they embraced Muhammad as their Messiah... That's when they became a cursed nation. Okay, the religion itself is cursed, uh, and so 
you know, I don't think it was the plan that they would go out. I mean, he basically says, you know, I'm going to multiply you, bless you, watch over you, take care of you. So God's response to them was not one of cursing and obstruction. It's when they embraced Muhammad and became a fake religion against Jesus that that began to fall into line. Does that make sense? Uh, so if you go back and read what God says when he sends them away, he very much says, just you're just not the you're not the promise. Okay, the promise is not coming through you. Okay, it wasn't about you're a horrible, terrible person. It was my promise is going to come through Isaac. He's the one that gets the blessing because I chose it that way. He didn't say, and you are cursed forever, be gone. Who shows God's compassion and his goodness right. that he still blessed him because it wasn't his fault. And, and then he went to the, the Arabs did what the Canaanites did and a lot of Christians do. They went and worshiped false gods, therefore stirring up the ire of Jesus and God. Just like people who follow John Smith and Mormonism or people who follow the Watchtower Society or people who, you know, whatever, Hindu, Buddha, whatever. They're, they're just, they're, they're apart from God because they've chosen a different God. Okay. So when you look at Arabs in general, um, go back and read what, well, let's go back and do it real quick. Um, let's go back to, it's going to be in Genesis. Let's find it. Genesis, Abraham's descendants. Genesis. Let's see. That's going to be around Genesis. Let's see here. 20 something. Abraham and Lot separate. Blessed by Melchizedek. God's covenant with Abram. Okay, so we got to go back. See who can find it first. Um, okay, let me let me Google it. Um, Ishmael, Genesis 16. Let's head that way. Uh, now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from having children. Go to my servant, and I'll obtain children by her. He listened, and then they had a child, right? And... Uh, Basically, Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do it her as you please. Sarah dealt with her harshly. She fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by the spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarah. And the angel said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so they, can't be num they cannot be numbered for multitude. Okay, so there's a promise, right? Behold, you are pregnant, you shall bear a son. You will call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. 
He'll be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. He will dwell over all his kinsmen. He's going to be a fighting man. Um, uh, Truly I have seen he who looks after me. Uh, Hagar bore a son, called his name uh, Ishmael, 86 years old. Okay, now they go through. Isaac's birth is promised. Isaac gets born. Um, And we have the whole Sodom story. God rescues Lot. Um, God destroys Sodom, Lot and his daughters. Um, Somewhere in here there is the... Okay, uh, chapter 21, verse 8. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son. Okay. So Abraham rose early in the morning, took bread, skin of water, gave it to Hagar, put it on her shoulder, along with the child, and sent them away. When the water was gone, she put the child in the bushes. She sort of was expecting him to die. Uh, lift up the boy. Uh, the voice of the angel of the Lord called to Hagar from the heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Lift up, up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Okay? Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she filled the skin and gave her a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up, and he lived in the wilderness and became an expert with a bow, and he lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Okay? So there's no curse in this. Okay, I'm going to make you a great nation. That's exactly what he did. You're going to be constantly fighting with each other. That's exactly what they do. You're going to be dark and ruddy. That's exactly what they look like. Okay? So, you know, there's not a... Um, you know, then they go into the sacrifice of Isaac. Um, uh, Sarah dies, um, and then the rest of the story is all about Isaac. Okay, so it's important to realize the Arabs are not a cursed nation. Muslim faith is a cursed religion. Does that make sense? Um, and a lot of people have that really messed up. Trump doesn't understand. He never read the Bible, but. If he read the Bible, he would know that it's not a cursed nation. They're a blessed nation. God just says, you just don't happen to have the promise of Messiah in your seed. Uh, your dad basically tried to do his own thing. Okay, um, You're going to go out in the wood. You're going to populate. You're going to have a great nation. You're going to be a huge nation. But then later on we get into this, you know, um, Jacob, Isaac, all the struggles, you know, that you're going to be fighting each other in the womb, you're fighting each other, I mean, so we'll get into all that later. But the point is, is that when we look at this nation as a whole, they were just separated and sent out to go a different way. They weren't cursed. Yeah, yeah the, the problem becomes, you know, later on, uh, where, you know, there are two, two nations in your womb and they're fighting each other. And that's where the struggle starts. So, but it's interesting. I think Genesis is very interesting because it sets up the rest of the Bible. I mean, it really does. A lot of people get like locked into creation when they do Genesis. But the, the problem is, if you look at Genesis, it's like nine, how many chapters is it? Forty chapters, something ridiculous. And only like one half of one chapter has to do with creation. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the rest of it's all about the Jewish people. 
God's setting up the lineage, God's setting up the process, why the world is the way it is. Um, and, um, you know, if you, let me just skip down real quick and then we'll close. I just want to find this one. Abraham dies. Okay, and then uh, these are the generations of Ishmael. I'm in like chapter 25. Uh, Abraham's son, who Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham uh, in order of their birth. Neboeth, uh, Kedar, he goes through it all. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by the villages and their encampments. Twelve princes according to their tribes. Uh, Ishmael lived to be 137 years old. Uh, they settled in Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. And he settled over all his kinsmen. Okay, so uh, that's in verse chapter 25. So Ishmael dies. Okay, then we get the story of Isaac, right? So Abraham, Isaac. Uh, Isaac was 40 years old. He took Rebekah. And then Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And she conceived. And she ends up having two nations in her womb. Okay, that's in verse 23. Uh, two people from within you shall be divided. One shall be stronger than the other. The older will serve the younger. Okay. When her days came to birth, there were twins in her womb. The first came out all red, hairy, and they named him Esau. After that, his brother came out holding his heel. His name was Jacob. And Isaac was 64 when she bore them. And then they go through the whole thing where Esau's the hunter and he sells his birthright. Remember all that stuff? Mm -hmm. uh, and then Isaac is the one who gets the blessing. Isaac is the one who carries the promise. Okay. Now, this is different than the nation of Arabs, right? Because they're just a group of people multiplying. Now you have a group of people fighting within the womb. Um, and it's those descendants um, that um, get us more into Muslim Christian or Muslim Jewishness, if you looked at it that way. It's after that split that they become that way um, but it's very interesting just to do a um, I call it a flyover of Genesis because a lot of times what happens is we start reading Genesis and we get lost in like where we are in the timeline mm -hmm. but sometimes if you just do a flyover and you okay this happened and this happened you look at the titles okay oh that's when that okay now so now we've got two nations that are fighting each other one is going to be um, um, you know ruddy they're always going to serve so the descendants of Esau are always going to serve the descendants of Isaac, uh, Ishmael. I'm sorry, uh, Isaac. Um, and um, Isaac blesses Jacob, uh, and, you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He goes on. And so, uh, you know, if you ever get a chance, just sort of look at the titles of um each of these groups. Now Esau is the one that's born that's going to be ruddy. You're going to get in trouble, right? And if you just look at the titles in chapter 28, Esau marries an Ishmaelite. Okay. Who should Ishmael be marrying? Not a Canaanite. Okay. He marries a Canaanite. It says, you must not take a wife from Canaanite women. Jacob had obeyed his father and mother and had gone... Uh, so when Esau saw the Canaanite women did not please his father, he went and took one as his wife. My, my, my. And that's, okay, so then Jacob has his dream. He wrestles with God. He marries Leah and Rachel and goes through that whole thing. Um, and then Jacob has children. 
Um, and it goes on about how each of them had different kids, and then they have 12 kids, and then they fight, they send, you know, whatever. And then periodically you'll see something stuck in here about here's what's going on on the other side of the equation. Um, see if I can find one. Um, yeah, so what happens is Jacob goes through all this. He has his kids. All this stuff's happening. And then Jake, uh, they two meet. Jacob fears Esau. Remember the two meet? Um, and, um, you know, he thinks Esau's going to kill him. Uh, he's coming to meet you, 400 men with him. Uh, and um, Jacob ends up wrestling with God. Jacob meets Esau. Uh, so they uh, ran to meet. They embraced. Um, but remember, the promise on Esau is that, um, you know, they're not going to get along. Um, right, so why did they at that time? Let's see here. Dinah gets. Uh, I have to go back and. Um, God renames Jacob, Isaac, Esau's descendants. Chapter 36. These are the generations of Esau. Esau took his wives, his daughters, and all the members of his household and livestock, all his beasts, his property, he acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into land away from his brother Jacob. There are two great possessions to deal together. They couldn't support each other. He settled in the hill country. Here's the generations that follow. Uh, then there's four chiefs. Uh, huh? Yep. Yep. And he says, they reigned in the land of Edom. Um, so now we got the Edomites or those descendants. Um, and God just begins to set up these two nations that are next to each other who are not going to get along. And then the next thing that happens, Joseph's sold by his brothers, and you get the whole Egyptian story. And then God goes and rescues the Israelites from Egypt. Um, and they go back and take the land of Canaan, which ticks off a bunch of Canaanites. Um, and since they don't drive them all out and destroy them like they're supposed to, they set up a problem where they're battling with them forever. Um, so sometimes a global sort of just look out over Genesis titles is actually very helpful to keep putting things in perspective of the timeline of when they happened. Because you're like, oh, yeah, that's right. Or, you know, and be less interested in, you know, is it Leah or Rachel and more just the overall movement of what's happening is these two nations. The story of Genesis is two peoples, then two nations, uh, and then the Jewish nation that carries the promise of the Messiah. So does that make sense? Thank you.